This is Pathways. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. And today we're talking with Dr. Caleb McKinney. Dr. McKinney received his BS degree in biology with a minor in applied economics and business management from Cornell University. His PhD dissertation work was from New York University on how the human cytomegalovirus regulates its replication by altering the translational landscape of the cells it infects. He went on to a postdoc at the NIH with Alice McBride, studying how host factors contributed to early viral gene expression in a human papillomavirus infection of keratinocytes. After his postdoc, he took his current position at Georgetown University as assistant director of the Office of Career Strategy and Professional Development. How did he go from NIH postdoc to going all in for leading pre and postdoctoral professional development? Let's find out. Caleb, welcome to Pathways. Thank you. Caleb, tell us about your position as Assistant Director of the Office of Career Strategy and Professional Development. What are your responsibilities and what does a typical day for you look like? Well, my position was created um, to serve the, the career development needs of our masters and PhD students, as well as our postdoctoral research fellows, because there was a need for that type of uh, infrastructure and support at the medical center because we didn't have that at first. And so my position was created to build programs, meet with students one-on-one, -on -one, meet with trainees one-on-one, -on -one to really help them with their career development needs, and also to build relationships with employers and alumni to keep uh, placement sustainability and pipelines uh, going into the future. And so day-to-day -day for me, I'm either meeting with students or designing programs or working with career centers across campus, um, and there's also a large amount of data management, which actually, which actually goes along with my previous uh, background at the lab. And except this time, instead of tracking cells, I'm more so tracking outcomes and where our uh, students go in the future in their um, employment sectors. And so, did you build a database for that, or, or do you uh, had? that already been in place? So there was nothing like that in place already. So we ha had to build a database from scratch. And so there was a lot of the infrastructure actually that we had to build from scratch, including the actual one-on-one -on -one advising infrastructure. And so there was a lot that wasn't in place already. And so I was able to really get entrepreneurial here, which um, really goes along with kind of designing experiments because it really was kind of designing an experiment, whether it be a program or um, the database itself. And I had a background in my previous studies with managing big data. I did in my PhD um, and I did in my postdoc as well. So I think just coming up with those organizing principles for um, organizing data was very helpful. And so I definitely wasn't scared of all of the outcomes. It was actually pretty fun. Well, I guess I could see this two ways. One is you're demonstrating how your graduate education and postdoctoral training has been extremely applicable to what you do now. But the other exciting thing is that you had a blank canvas and you got to have fun developing things as you saw they needed to be developed. And that's pretty exciting. It was a delight, it really was, to have that level of freedom. And I was able to leverage my previous background in knowing what these programs should look like because NYU had really good professional development programs. Um, they had a best grant shortly after I left. They, uh, NIH is probably one of the gold standards, the intramural 
research program has the Office of um, Intramural Education and Training and uh, Allergy and Infectious Diseases has our uh, training office as well, the Office of Training and Diversity. So I had a lot of good benchmarks and a lot of great ideas to come in with, and Georgetown was very acceptable of those ideas. No, that, that's great. So we know where you're at right now. Let's go all the way back. <laughs> when were you bitten by the science bug, as I like to ask my guests? I had about 15 fish tanks growing up all over the house in our house on the south side of Chicago. And I guess it was my obsession. And growing up in the south side of Chicago, my parents were probably thankful that I had that as a hobby and not some of the other things my peers found themselves doing on the street. So I, I enjoyed my fish, breeding fish, and coming up with different ways to manipulate the environment so that it could kind of recapitulate their, um, their different habitats that they may be used to. Uh, reproducing in and so I started experiments at 10 years old pretty much just waiting for the fish to lay eggs and so I think that's what did it and then I started doing high school uh, science fairs and it just kind of soared from there. When you think about those types of things it's just an excitement that you have that curiosity then you have other opportunities and then from there you just go down a certain path and it's just because it's, you're just so enthralled. That's how, I think we're all made of the same, we all have the same DNA, I think, in many <laughs> respects. We get bitten by the same bug and we have that, that scientist DNA. So you went from, from, from high school in, on the south side of Chicago, you went to Cornell. Yes. Tell us about your experience at Cornell. You're, you're a biology major, of course, we understand why that would be the case with your in your 15 fish tanks that you had at home. But you also minored in applied economics and business management. Why? In high school, I went to an agricultural high school and they taught us a lot of foundational core concepts of agriculture and agribusiness. And so that really molded and kind of focused my science a bit. And so when I got to Cornell, and I tell this story retrospectively. At the end of the day, I just kind of had no idea what I was doing and was piling electives together. But the way that I think that it really came together was reflective of where I came from in high school and that ultimately kind of merging business and science was kind of what I was trained to do in my high school curriculum. And then Cornell really reinforced that for me. And Cornell introduced me to research, lab, really hardcore lab research and they have one of the best bio majors in the world and so everybody in my major got a chance to do research whether you were pre-med or whatever you were trying to do getting an idea and a grapple of the scientific method was a key component of my undergraduate education and i really attribute my my trajectory to that so when you were at cornell uh, did you have a professor uh, eric denkers I didn't. I know who he was, though, but I didn't have him for a class. Now, you know, he's a fellow NIH'er. He was a postdoc with Alan Scher. Oh, was he? <laughs> Such a small world. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, and uh, Eric's there. So, And I, I know that you studied Merrick's disease virus, which yeah. you know, herpes viruses have always been interesting to me. I've worked on them in the lab, and, and that's not exactly... You know, just looking under the microscope, that's some pretty hardcore stuff that you have to do in studying that virus. Did you actually go into chickens as well? 
So I didn't have to go into chickens. I, for, for my project, we had a lot of cell lines already from chicken embryo fibroblasts. So that's kind of where I started. <laughs> I got a little more in the weeds with the primary cell, with the isolation from um, human foreskin fibroblasts in my postdoc. So let's, let's uh, wait before going to your postdoc and talk about your next step after Cornell. You went to NYU for your PhD. What interested you or attracted you to going to, to NYU where you, you, know, you, you worked on another, vi another herpes virus, human CMV? I, I, I really owe a lot of my current success to my dean at the time, Joe Oppenheim. And he recruited for NYU programs from Cornell. And I remember when he came and gave a talk, and um, I was pretty much convinced at that point that that's where I was going. To know that they had that type of support network and that type of mentorship and somebody who would be in my corner. And he wasn't just saying those things. When I got there, that's what happened the whole six years I was there. And he does that, he did that for each and every student that came into that program. The commitment that NYU has to their graduate students is astounding. And um, I, I, I really, I, it was a pretty easy decision for me. It's another example, I think, for folks to, to, to note who are listening, pre-docs and post-docs, how important networking is and Indeed. how that can help you land in places where you feel comfortable and can be successful. That's really important, that kind of support that we all need as as individuals definitely and i think it's important when you're applying to these programs to really get a, an idea and a gauge of the types of programs and activities that are available to students to help them develop like the the program that you're doing right now to interview me it's a really good example of some structures that are available to students that you should really think about before even applying to schools to make sure these types of programs exist it's, it's a you want to paint thing, uh, the world with a broad brush if you can, so you have as many opportunities as, as you can. Okay, so you got your PhD at NYU, and then you went off to the National Institutes of Health, a place near and dear to my heart, and to Allison McBride's lab. Tell us how you hooked up with Allison and, and a little bit about what you did in the lab. Yeah, so I had a very uncon I had a, a pretty unconventional way of going about my postdoc applications. I didn't um, apply to any openings in particular. I applied to a program, a recruitment program, uh, sponsored by the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. It's called the Intramural Research Opportunities Program, NRO for shorthand. And I applied to that program, um, and it's a, a visit to the NIAD campus for uh, diverse populations that, uh, that may be interested in post-baccalaureate or post-doctoral opportunities. And we were part of a cohort. And so we interviewed with different um, PIs around NIAD and uh, set up some pretty good connections with those, um, with those PIs. And there was also programmatic components where we had talks from different administrators on the campus and whatnot. It was a really, very exquisitely well put together program. And I believe it's gone into its, um, into its 16th year coming up. And so it's a very well established program and I recommend it to anybody that wants to kind of get into infectious diseases at NIH. 
And so Allison plucked me from the, the list of trainees that were a part of the program because our, my background aligned with what she was interested in. And I talked to her, had a good connection, and then um, she brought me back to campus for a formal interview. And that's essentially what happened to all of the people in my cohort and how they got placed in their respective labs as well. Now, that's, that's great. There's so many opportunities that one can take advantage of, and you certainly did, and it worked out pretty, pretty well. So tell us a little bit about your, your PhD project, and then we're going to talk about some professional development. Okay, so my, as you alluded to earlier, my trajectory in research has largely been virus-host interactions. And so what was attractive to my postdoc lab for my PhD was that I was able to kind of elucidate some um, mechanisms by which cytomegalovirus is regulated by DNA damage response pathways. And so that kind of went into my postdoc where I was started looking at DNA damage response pathways, as well as chromatin modifying uh, cellular pathways and how that regulates papillomavirus infection during my postdoc. And I managed to get a first author paper out implicating one chromatin factor in particular, BRD4, as being a regulator during early stage papillomavirus infection, which is a key stage at this point that researchers are trying to target before the virus goes into latency, which when it typically has its tumorigenic effects in transforming cells. In terms of your experience at the NIH, you started to look at being able to develop professional development activities there, at least get some experience there. Could you tell us what were those experiences and how did you find out about them and get involved? That's an amazing question. And so I was very deliberate I, I tend to be overly decisive at times. And so once I decided that's what I wanted to do, I knew that I needed to get some skills and some, um, some tasks under my belt to show that I can put on programs and things like that. But at the same time, I knew that I was overly decisive. So I wanted to dabble a bit and make sure this was something I actually liked doing. <laughs> and so our Office of Training and Diversity, led by uh, Wendy Fibison, uh, Dr. Fibison also leads the NRO program that got me into my NIH position. So I went back to her and um, set up an informational interview. And I set one up before I even realized I knew what one of those was. <laughs> so I set up a time to talk to her to talk about what her office does because I enjoyed a lot of the programs that she puts on. She brings back um, NIAD postdoc alums to talk about what they're currently doing, uh, especially if it's outside of the academic route, and I enjoyed that. And so I wanted to kind of ask about some of the nitty gritty of how she puts on those programs and how I could get involved to kind of get some experience and see if that's kind of a training and development type of career that I would want to go into. Because I, I, I enjoyed the programs that she put on and I thought they were really impactful and helpful and that was the type of impact that I wanted to have uh, in the future. And so it turns out that there was an opening for the position that oversees those programs and in the meantime, she let me run the program and invite back alums and put on a legit, organize the logistics and manage the program. And so I really got some tangible administrative experience by working, volunteering in that office. And the nice thing is I was able to balance it with my experiments. So during a Western blot, you go check out your emails, see how your speaker is doing, and you block out the lunchtime speaker slot. 
And so it's, it's, it's a balancing act to make sure you get your research done, but at the same time, immersing yourself in these experiences becomes really important for getting you that clarity and that those tangible experiences. I think that's great because you said you're very deliberate. You knew what you wanted to do. You knew certain people, hey, net, networking. And then from there, you got to really experience things. Now you said at the, at the outset, your position at Georgetown was essentially created. How did you hook up with the folks at Georgetown to begin with so that they could create that position or was it already created and then you happened to know about it and went for it? How did, how did all that transpire? So it was the second one. So they knew that they had the need well before they knew that I existed. And so the position was created and it was posted and then I'd happen to come across it on the NIH career jobs board. <laughs> and so I applied for it and it turned out to be a really good fit from what I was doing in Dr. Fibison's office. And so I, I just came across it and applied to it. It was a match made in heaven, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's, that happens too, right? I mean, it just seems this position looks like it's perfectly written for me. Right. And you go and you talk to them and they feel the same way. And that's just how it works out, which is, which is great. Certainly, you have a lot of responsibilities there now and where you're overseeing a lot of things. Tell me a little bit about the things that perhaps you think are, are, that are most satisfying to you and also things that are most challenging. So the things that are most satisfying, I would say, are the impact that I get to have on the students. And I know that I have that impact when they leave my office after a one-on-one -on -one advising meeting, a lot less frantic than when they came in. <laughs> and then I also do program evaluations. Uh, I like having data and I like to know that the programs that I put together have impact. And so I do the evaluations to assess learning outcomes from the students. And it seems like students that come to my programs gain a lot more insights and clarity for their career trajectories or the how to get to where they're going. So some of the obstacles, when you go from staring into a microscope for most of your day to having to attend meetings, engage with people a lot, you wind up in kind of a social learning curve, I think. And so it's something that a lot of scientists pivoting into the workforce have to deal with all the time, becoming a little more socially aware of their kind of workplace dynamic. And so that was something that I had to realize, kind of bureaucratic navigation, politics, a lot of things that you kind of don't normally deal with when you're dealing with sales. It's like if sales don't want to be next to each other, you know, you throw out the plate and get another one. But, <laughs> but bureaucratic navigation was definitely a, a, a different type of challenge for me. But I, I, I've adjusted really well, I think. It just kind of takes time and you want to build a network wherever you go a support network of peers and colleagues. Us who are, you know, we're scientists and, and no matter what career path somebody takes, and you're using your doctoral education, your postdoctoral training, you're still a scientist. I mean, that, that never leaves. But if I asked you when you started graduate school and you were thinking about what your ultimate career was going to be, where you would land, what were you thinking back then? So back then I was definitely, I. I definitely would not have suspected or projected that I would be where I'm at now. I kind of was just kind of taking it step by step, a lot more 
of an iterative process back then, just kind of learning how to do science at that point without any real idea about how to apply it. And so there were the typical, oh, you go in industry, you go in consulting, the typical kind of big wig sectors that I had heard of, but I hadn't done a lot of investigating. And so I started doing that toward the end of my graduate training. And really that's, that's too late. And so I, I, I would encourage people to really think more and explore more about your options right from the start and start building those contacts and talking to alums and figuring out where they went so you can have a broad idea of what's available to help have, make an informed decision towards the end of your training. You know, it, it's, it sounds to me that you're certainly what you've been saying is how positive your mentors have been. So it's going into a, let's say a non-academic position. I mean, I know that NIH is different, having been there myself, but I, I wonder from your experience when your fellow, say, graduate students at NYU were looking at different career paths, what was, what was the consideration for people who decided to go in a direction other than, than academia? I think that there are a, a lot of students in my peer group were kind of stigmatized. There's a lot of stigma these days about maybe pivoting away from the academic track. But at the same time, in the last few years, you know, from the point that I graduated to the point now, I've noticed that there's a change in the landscape of thought regarding uh, students pivoting into non-academic careers. I don't even like to call them non-canonical because these days the scientific enterprise is so diverse that students can go into a career track um, with this, you know, can go into a career track and enjoy it as much as they would have if they stayed in academia. But I think that nowadays mentors are realizing that they kind of need help with um, training their trainees to think outside of the box and making sure that their trainees know that they're available to them and they may not be able to advise them specifically on a particular type of career, but just being able to let them know that they can have that conversation with them, I think is becoming paramount these days. And I have noticed that students are being a little more proactive in having those conversations with their mentors and mentors are being a little more receptive to having those conversations. At the end of the day, mentors play a really important role in shaping the trajectories of their trainees. And even if mentors, like I said, don't know about the specific careers that the trainees are interested in, getting their buy-in can really make or break the the momentum that that trainee has with uh, fulfilling their career exploration. At Georgetown, what are some of the things that you're doing? Let's say, you know, every institution has unique offerings that they provide to their their pre-docs and post-docs and things they're, they're quite proud of. Maybe you could share a few of those things with us. Oh yeah, so I, I like I mentioned before, I was able to be quite entrepreneurial with the structures that I help build here. Um, there's, a, there's a program that I started that I kind of borrow from NIH, the career option seminars where I bring back alums. And in this case, I also started bringing in employers as well to talk about different career fields that may be available to the students. And so um, I, I like to kill two birds with one stone as much as I can and strategize. And so when I bring in employers, I also will have student reporters write up the seminars. And these are students that are interested in careers in writing or communications and need a portfolio of their written accomplishments. And so these students 
uh, write-ups get published on our website and then those students are able to use those write-ups as a portfolio for their written accomplishments and several of these reporters have gone on into positions uh, whereby they were able to leverage this experience to help get their foot in that door while at the same time providing value to our current students and trainees that weren't able to attend the seminars by giving them something to reference. That's thinking outside the box. That's really an, inter <laughs> an interesting way to do things. That's great. So that's a, that, that's a really interesting program. And so some of the other things that we've uh, developed are a blog where we have uh, our administrators write up different topics. I, I also started a leadership course that I borrowed from NIH as well. NIH has a workplace dynamics certificate course. Notice if you um, provide a certificate or some credential that people can put on their resumes, that gives them more of an inclination to attend things. And so I developed a course in um, career development that teaches our students and trainees how to facilitate constructive uh, behaviors that they can implement in the workforce. And so kind of modeling my um, my learning curve that I described when I came in, I want to kind of train our students to think outside of the box a bit when it comes to their social interactions and their collegial interactions and have them bear in mind that this is going to translate a little differently when they actually get to the workforce and to kind of go through some conflict resolution and some team building type skills with them to help them navigate the social complexities of the workforce. So you have PhD students, you have postdocs listening to our conversation today and they're in a, in a situation where they don't really know what direction they want to go in, or they maybe know a little bit, but, they, but they're curious about being in a office that oversees professional development for pre-docs and post-docs. Now, whether they have those types of resources at their institutions or not, what kind of advice do you have for, for these folks who might be interested in, in at least learning a little bit more about the kinds of opportunities and, and things they can do in the type of career that you have? I, I like to go back to what I did and just kind of immerse, my, immerse myself. So I often tell our trainees, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily my particular trajectory with professional development, but anything that you're trying to do, there's likely the sector represented at the university. Universities have every sector and most industries represented on campus in some office or another. And do like I did and just send an email expressing your interest in what they're doing and see if you can get involved in a project, see if you can help in any sort of way so that you can gain tangible skills to highlight on your resume and on your uh, application documents. It also helps clarify your interests a bit. I always recommend taking an interest inventory to maybe help determine which offices you might reach out to. Like, what are you, what are you interested in and what skills do you want to develop? For my particular trajectory, I would say if you don't have an office like mine on campus that you can work in, um, reach out to professional organizations, volunteer for professional organizations, like I did with the National Postdoc Association joining their team as a diversity officer. And so a lot of postdocs join these organizations in various capacities and they volunteer. I have a list of volunteers that are waiting for us to give them projects for the MPA just so that they could kind of get involved and give back to the community. I guess what you would also want to say 
I, I'm, I'm sure, because we've talked about this a little bit, is that to make sure that any pre-doc or postdoc who's going to do these types of things and be away from the lab to make sure they get permission from their PI. So exactly. that they're, they're brought in <laughs> to, the, to the decision as well. Yeah, and I, I, I think that that is a really important relationship to maintain because it gets very sensitive around the topic of, I would like to kind of embark on this little journey while I'm finishing up my work with you. And then that, of course, leads to the, well, how much time is it going to take away from the lab? And so preemptively coming up with a plan to address your work in the lab, which is of your paramount importance and priority, while at the same time facilitating your career development is a, you got to reach the sweet spot. But if you talk to your PI, keep them involved in the conversation and make sure that you have a plan in place for how you're going to uh, keep up with your project during the time that you're exploring other careers and try to synergize as much as possible. Uh, very important message and thank you for, for that. Now, I have one last question, Caleb, and that is, is there a question that I should have asked, but I didn't? Probably not particularly a question, but more so um, a final nugget of advice that I could give is really, it goes back to me being deliberate and decisive. I think that when you actually figure out what you're interested in, to be very deliberate in developing skills that pertain to that particular trajectory, which you can do in the lab, you can do in offices on campus or whatever immersion activities that you find, but make sure that you figure out what skills you need that correspond to where you want to be and get those skills during your training. That's great. I think as the, that nugget's a great nugget to end on. So yeah. thank you, Caleb. My pleasure. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Caleb McKinney, for sharing his story of the steps he took from science undergraduate major and business minor to an NIH postdoc and then to an administrator involved in the professional development of pre-docs and postdocs. I also thank all of you for joining us on this podcast today. Remember, you can find us on the Indiana University School of Medicine's website, SoundCloud, and on iTunes under IUSM Pathways. Also, in addition to the audio from our broadcasts, for some of our interviews, we've captured a video as well. Join us next time on Pathways as we explore the career path of another professional who holds a PhD in the sciences, which landed them in their current and very exciting non-academic position. I'm Randy Brutkowitz. The theme music for Pathways, Supernova, was composed by Aaron Brutkowitz. Pathways is a production of the Indiana University School of Medicine.